0: I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. All right, this is the first in a three-part series that I'm going to do on what I'm going to call best agility training practices. And am I the expert? Am I the genius of anything? Absolutely not. What I'm gonna share with you is what I have learned in 20 years in the sport, as well as what I have learned from my clients and their dogs. Because if I had only trained my dogs in my time in the sport, I would know a fraction of what I know. Instead, I get the privilege of working with other competitors when they encounter issues. And part of the gift of that is that I get to unravel those issues and kind of trace them back to their source and figure out what's going on from from the root of what's going on. And so what I'm about to share with you is... A lot about what I wish people knew so that they didn't need my help. And so this first one is going to be about reinforcement. The next one is going to be about speed and misconceptions about how to get it. And the last one is going to be about separating the ring from your training and also bridging the gap between the two. So the first one, let's go. This is all about reinforcement generally speaking in dog agility we are using food or toys to reinforce a lot of people i would say most people do a lot of puppy training with food but also introduce puppies to toy play really early on and it is culturally a thing to train with toys in agility the first thing i'm going to tell you is that that is all that is is a cultural thing You don't have to train with toys to have success in dog agility. Anybody who thinks you need to train with toys to have success in dog agility has simply not stretched their capabilities further than that. And they're really, um, you know, just kind of falling prey to the cultural fog that exists in our game. And so if anybody's ever made you feel kind of lesser than because you were training with food, let me be the first to tell you that you're not a loser for training with food. That sometimes food is, in fact, most of the time, food is the most efficient reinforcer and the most effective one that we have. So whether you use food or a toy, what I would encourage is that you do not necessarily have a default, but that instead, you look at the thing you need to train And you ask yourself, which reinforcer that I have available to me is going to achieve this best? And this goes well beyond what I kind of initially learned, um, which is that using food for precision and toys for speed or drive is a good idea. I was taught that a very long time ago, actually in competitive obedience. And it's not totally wrong, but here's, here's why we think that we think that because the behavior that the dog does acquiring the reinforcer. So the behavior that the dog engages in to acquire the reinforcer will get woven into your final behavior. And this is talked a lot about, um, in agility as an emotional transfer as being that the dog's feelings are the same. I'm gonna argue that that's not always true, but the behaviors certainly mimic the behaviors that the dog does to take reinforcement. Let me give you an example. Uh, I'll give you several examples. So some for food and some for toys and ways that this benefits us and ways that it hurts us. I have had many, many clients whose dogs bite them at the end of an agility run. Without fail, every single one of these people in training delivers a toy at the end of the run. They either throw it or they um, lower it down for the dog to bite. So the dog is biting or chasing and biting something at the end of the run in training. And then in the absence of that toy, that behavior needs to go somewhere and it gets targeted at the person. So that's one way that the topography of the behavior the dog has to do to acquire the reinforcer transfers over and hurts us. Uh, Similarly with toys you could have a dog flatten through a line of jumps and take bars because you've taught them to run down a line of jumps by throwing a toy and they want to flatten and run at that toy. And if you're rolling your eyes and going well that that That's you're not doing it right. (laughs) Trust me, I know. (laughs) I know that's not the right way to do it. It doesn't mean that people don't do it and get themselves into trouble. So it's just an example. A beneficial way that toys might help your training is that a dog can target it and run fast to it. And so if you want to work on, say, obstacle focus or commitment, You can send the dog to that really visual reinforcer that they're driven to run to, like, say, a jump or a tunnel, and teach them that they need to go get it, even though you're running the other way, before you ever involve, say, a jump or send and go. So that's a way that it can benefit us with toys. Let's talk about food. Food, we can certainly feed in a specific way that encourages a specific body position. So I can feed my dog on the end of the teeter in such a way that he shifts his weight backwards as he eats. And I'm weaving that weight shift back into my final behavior on that teeter, which I want. A way that food can hurt my progress might be that the dog wants to come into me and stick to me and not go out and do his job because he gets all of his reinforcement from my hand right at my body. Okay, so these are ways that the behaviors that the dog does in order to get reinforcement weave their way into our final picture behaviors in ways that benefit and don't benefit us. So don't have a default. Always ask, What is my reinforcement strategy for this session going to be and why? So um, earlier, I'm working on a kind of four on behavior for my puppy, for her final, her teeter behavior that she'll know in like a year from now. But I'm working on the foundation of four on on a wobble board. And when she gets on, I mark and I throw the food. And she comes back to the wobble board and gets on and sticks and I mark and I throw the food. She is not, not sticking because I'm throwing the food. And therefore, I'm fine to continue to use the reinforcement strategy that sets up my next loop of behavior appropriately. If I were getting motion through, if I stopped getting my stop, I'd need to add another cookie And give my puppy a cookie in position before throwing a cookie off of the wobble board. So planning my reinforcement strategy has to do with a couple of things. It has to do with how do I get my dog into the next loop of reinforcement? How do I want my dog to look as they take the reinforcement? And is this behavior going to be detrimental to my final behavior? So we wanna think about all of those things and we want to be flexible because if she does start running through the behavior because she's anticipating the next cookie and there's a reason she's not, but we don't need to go deep into that. Um, (laughs) If you wanna know, ask me in Patreon. (laughs) Um, So I'm asking myself, how do I get her into the next loop of reinforcement? And then I'm asked, and that that is tossing the treat, and therefore that's what I've selected. But I'm watching and I'm flexible. So if she chooses to start moving through that behavior rather than sticking, which is what I want her to do, then I'm going to change my strategy to produce sticking. So I'm always watching and I'm always paying attention to what's happening. So use what works and use what works for the given situation. There are plenty of dogs for whom certain reinforcers simply put them into a mental state that is not conducive to learning. So if the second your dog sees a toy of any kind, he is no longer able to perform simple cues like sit or lie down, then you certainly should not be using that toy to try to teach complex behaviors like weave poles or handling. Similarly, if your dog loses his mind over food, you're going to want to work on that. Find some maybe less exciting food, maybe feed the dog before you start training, change your conditions so that the dog is back into a healthy state of mind. It is, so after you've kind of chosen what type of reinforcer am I using, it is really important to also be sure that you're utilizing a clean communication system. So being able to tell the dog what reinforcer they're getting and where is important. You do not have to have an elaborate location-specific marker system. You absolutely do not. What I think you need at a minimum, if you're going to be switching between food and toys in a given session, would be a different cue for food versus toys. If you're never going to switch between the two, you certainly could use one cue that means take reinforcement. And further, you know, you can go as deep as you want to here. So for me, the first most important thing I need to decide is what reinforcer am I using and how do I deliver it? But then the second thing I need to know is how to be clean in my delivery. So I need to be able to tell the dog, yes, you've earned reinforcement, and then deliver the reinforcement in a separate motion or process. So I first need to inform and then deliver. These need to be separate events. When these two events blend together, we see all kinds of problems. And in my work, the primary problem I see is highly frustrated, I'm even gonna venture to say angry, dogs who are unclear about how to get their reinforcement and when they're getting it. And these dogs get labeled high arousal. So we want to avoid that by being very, very clean in our delivery. Once you are capable of being clean in your delivery, you can teach a more elaborate system if you choose. So for instance, you could teach an advanced marker system. Here are the kind of the two markers for food that I think would be wise. Um, for people to teach once they understand how to keep the inform and the deliver as two separate events. The first one is a terminal marker. And that essentially means when I say this word or make this sound, stop what you're doing and collect reinforcement. For me, you know, the classic terminal marker is just a clicker. So if I click, my dog should exit the weave poles and take reinforcement immediately. If I click, he should move out of his contact position and take reinforcement immediately. This is valuable for so many reasons, but primarily when we're building behavior chains, it is so important for us to be able to identify each link in the chain. And we can't do that if we don't have a terminal marker. Really frequently, I see people confusing their dogs by saying yes, but expecting the dog to continue whatever that behavior was until they get, until the person decides to deliver the reinforcement. Again, I'm going to use weave poles as a perfect example. If you click when your dog make, makes the entry, but you expect him to finish the 12 weave poles, then you are not using a clicker as a terminal marker. Is that okay? It is okay as long as you are consistent in that and that is always true. The problem is that the same people are using a clicker in shaping where it is a terminal marker. So it's very important to be very clear in your own head about what each piece of communication means so that you can communicate it to your dog. The other cue that I like to use, the other marker I like to use, is what people refer to as a room service or I like to just call a weight marker. That means I'm going to say this word and it means stay there. I'm, con- I'm going to bring you the reinforcer. This is really helpful in stationary behaviors. It is what I would choose to use for my puppy if she started to move through her four-on behavior. I would switch over to that marker, which means I'm bringing you the food. And at some point, I will need to, because at some point, I will involve my motion in that behavior. And my motion so far is a cue to follow my motion. And so I'll need another piece of information for her that means wait there. Something that is misunderstood uh, largely in dog sports is a KGS or keep going signal. So if you believe that maybe clicking repeatedly through the weave poles is indicating to your dog to just keep weaving, then you're using a clicker as a KGS. And again, you don't get to use it as multiple things. So if it means, if it is a terminal marker sometimes, it needs to be a terminal marker all the time. A keep going signal is also not technically Oh gosh, it's it's more of a tertiary reinforcer, whereas a marker is a secondary reinforcer. So without getting too deep into the, into the mud on that one, um, because I'm not even the best person to get into that mud for you, I'm gonna say the misuse of a keep going signal is when you sometimes mean, yes, yes, good job, means keep trying, And other times, yes, means come and eat food from me. So the misuse of the keep going signal would be if you mix it up with other signals that you use. I personally choose not to use a keep going signal. We as humans inadvertently usually teach praise as a keep going signal. So the dog understands that if I'm praising, it means keep trying And what a keep going signal is, when done well, is a cue to the animal to keep doing what they're doing because you will be marking soon. So it's kind of a, yeah, keep doing that. Can that be useful sometimes? Yes. Do I use it intentionally? No. So above all, you have got to try to be training without conflict. And when you involve confusion, into your reinforcement processes, you are weaving conflict into your training. And the behaviors that come with conflict look like this, barking at the handler, throwing behaviors frantically, uh, sometimes biting the handler, maybe running away with the toy, maybe going to steal food from somebody's bag that's ringside. Those are all things that say to me the dog is experiencing conflict between trying to engage in the game with you and doing what you want and just going ahead and taking reinforcement elsewhere. If the dog cannot engage in the reinforcement process, in the reinforcement strategy you have chosen, without experiencing frustration or internal conflict because you have not taught this strategy appropriately then you are weaving all of that yuckiness right into your training, right into your behaviors. And trust me, it's the fastest way for you to wind up in my office. I say that in quotations, my virtual office, which you don't want because working with me is a ton of work. <laughs> my, my case studies give you the tip of the iceberg about how much work it is. And you want to just be playing with your dog instead. So make sure that when it comes to agility training or really training for any other reason, you have first taught your reinforcement strategies to yourself, then to your dog, and then you have selected them wisely. So stay tuned for part two of best agility practices. Okay, some Patreon questions for you. This one comes from Audrey. Audrey writes, hi Sarah, I've started doing decompression walks in the past couple weeks with my seven month old icy puppy. The place we go is large, wooded, and partially fenced. One of the fully fenced sides is right against a highway and my puppy has started to run up and down that fence, chasing the cars when we walk over to that side of the park. She's only done it twice, a couple days ago on a 50 foot leash, so I was able to easily get her back to me and encourage her to walk back to the other side of the park. She loves chasing small animals on her off leash, but has never shown any interest in cars before. I want to make sure our decompression walks are actually doing what they ought to and I'm not creating dog starts chasing cars in other situations." Well, Audrey, bad news. <laughs> um, it is a bad thing. Chasing cars is always a bad thing. And the reason it is, is because it's very dangerous. I don't think I need to tell you that it's dangerous, but I am hearing that I do need to tell you that it absolutely will bleed over into all other scenarios where there are cars, and trust me when I tell you, it is not something you want to work through because there are cars everywhere. It is natural and normal for any breed with any kind of herding background to want to chase fast-moving objects, so... And this is kind of the age where a lot of them start to key into that kind of behavior. You've allowed it twice. Do not allow it a third time. What that means is you need to avoid that area of the park for now. And approach, like I would go out there. This is not a fully fledged behavior modification plan, which I hope you don't need. But um, avoid that area of the park. Just don't, just don't do it. Just don't open that door because as we learn from Kim Brophy, when they're allowed to engage in these patterns, it's very much self-reinforcing and we don't, we don't want that to continue, right? So I wouldn't, I would avoid that area or leash her if you need to pass through that area and do a lot of reinforcing for looking at you as you walked through that area on leash. And I would intentionally take her on leash, very safe, very secure double leasher if you have any doubts and go go do some training near some cars. Pick, pick a quiet street to begin with, not a freeway maybe a parking lot then near a street, then a busier street I mean I would tackle it right now I would teach her right now cars are a cue to look to mom instead of the cars um and I, I mean, I would dig in it. I would not allow it again, and I would really dig in on it. Uh, my other breed, Border Collies, I do have an Icelandic puppy, but my Border Collies, basically, I expect Border Collies to want to chase cars. It's a normal thing. I, want, I expect them to want to chase cars, cyclists, skateboarders, runners. <laughs> I expect this, and I headed off from the very beginning by never, ever allowing it to happen, which means that when they get really motion-sensitive... They're just not around those things. They don't see those things. I avoid those things. So don't allow it again. (laughs) Work really hard and some attention on you around the cars. All right, next one is from Susan. Susan writes, "'My two-year-old Collie and I do decompression walks nearly every morning. I have found recently more than normal that during boring portions of the walk, straight paths without exciting things around, or on days she needs the walk more than others, she will mouth my feet.' Sometimes it's just one time, almost like a drive-by, and sometimes more often pestering pestering me a few times in a row. However, eventually she'll give up and carry on with her walk. I've found this definitely occurs more when there's snow on the ground. Our path is not clear um, because they're under snow, so this means me trudging through snow with exciting boots flinging snow. I try to anticipate this and do some scatters or make those portions of the walk more exciting. However, this also can happen when I'm not expecting it and I wouldn't want the mouthing to turn into a way to get a scatter feed. Otherwise, on the walk, she is running, trotting, sniffing, etc. and afterwards is showing other signs of being decompressed. Do you have recommendations on what I should do in response to this annoying to her human, fun for her, behavior? Yeah, Susan. So, dog is two years old. Um... This is a, something that we usually see when they're a little bit younger, but maybe you saw glimmers of it and it wasn't a full-fledged problem until now. It sounds like the dog is uh, attracted to the motion, especially of the snow. Certainly the motion of your boots um, moving through the snow, but also the flinging snow and is biting at that moving thing very very normal I would caution you you said you try to make that time a little bit more exciting I think less exciting is better Um, so I would encourage you not to do exciting things in response to that but instead I would ask that dog to do another behavior I would ask that dog to walk near you and I'd be using a high rate of reinforcement for just walking near you so during that time just walk near me you're eating you're being normal You kind of say otherwise on the walk. So that that tells me that maybe there are times when this is a low-risk situation and other times when it's a high-risk situation. So when it's a high-risk situation, you're asking her to walk next to you and feeding her a lot for doing so. And when it's a lower-risk situation, you're not. But if she even starts to think about it, and yes, you have to learn when she is thinking about it because, y'all... This, this is true for anything you want to change. If you can't see the precursors to it, you won't be able to stop it. So I want you to pay very, very close attention to what is happening before she starts doing that. And start to cue her to walk near you and, and eat food. Um, I was just telling somebody, you know, Rhea likes to bite at my ankles, especially if I'm wearing fuzzy Ugg boots, as I walk through the house. And I know that it's a juvenile behavior in her and I know that it's going to go away. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm not doing things about it, but I'm not panicking about it. If she were a breed that were bred to bite. So like if she was a Malinois, I, it would have happened once and I would have never let it happen again. And when I say I don't allow something, people get confused about this. When I say I don't allow something, I'm not saying that I allow it. And then I correct it. (laughs) I'm saying I don't allow for it, which means that I arrange the environment. So it's not happening. Okay, so if if my collie needed to be on a gentle leader at a leash to not bite my feet as we're walking through the snow, then fine. I think that you can do better than that. I think you can use positive reinforcement instead. It is probably very self-feeding and she really, really loves it. And so you've got to have her do something else that she really, really loves. There are certainly other options that she might really love, but that would be... That's kind of my easy button option that I would give you. Okay. Last one is from Tara. Tara writes, in reference to the ethology episode, our five-year-old miniature American shepherd has intense needs to watch for intrusive things to bark at. Anything that appears out of nowhere, whether it is a vehicle, wildlife, person, etc., and to chase, bark, wrestle, annoy other dogs. So those are different behaviors. First of all, Tara. So Tara's mentioning two different behaviors, One is barking at things that appear out of nowhere, and the other is chase, bark, wrestle, annoy other dogs. So one is a play style, and the other is kind of a a deep-rooted, instinctual behavior. So, rest of the question. Is it clear that these, it is clear that these are deep DNA needs? I cannot think of outlets for these needs that are appropriate. And wouldn't giving him guarding opportunities and wrestling opportunities just increase those feelings? Could they ever be satiated to the point that their problematic nature would be decreased? I don't want to just tell him he can't be who he is, but I also don't want to let him practice what I see to be annoyance behaviors. Neither of these behaviors decrease much at all with increased exercise or enrichment. First of all, allowing expression of these behaviors might increase them in the scenarios in which they're allowed to be expressed, but don't kind of increase the need for them overall. I am going to push back a little bit on the play style being a deep need. I have seen plenty of dogs with obnoxious play styles learn that that's not how they get to play. They need appropriate playmates that teach them that much. Um, and I interrupt it too. I mean, I don't. I don't let my dogs be obnoxious to other dogs. And Aussies, this is a miniature American, but you know, same roots, are obnoxious in their play style. They like to t-bone. They like to bark. They like to slam other. They they love. E- they love to play with each other. So that's kind of the number one thing I would say is can there be play dates with other dogs like him so that he can play like that and then be asked not to play like that with your other dogs, um, with your border collies who are not going to appreciate that kind of play. So that's one option. But the other behavior, the barking at the um, thing that appears, the vehicle, wildlife person, et cetera, I would say, when is that a real problem? It's probably only a real problem You know, it might be a real problem on your walks. It might be a real problem in your home. You know, what I would do is it happens and you start to have a communication system where you acknowledge it and then you kind of get between him and the thing and ask him to do something else and then reinforce really, really heavily and then let him look again. And if he wants to bark again, cool. And then get in between him and the thing and ask him to do something else and feed him again. Other than completely kind of rehabbing reactivity, which it kind of doesn't sound like is necessary. It sounds like he needs to alert you to the fact that a thing showed up, which is fair. Let him alert you. Tell him you saw it. Ask him to do something else. Feed him for doing the other thing. So I hope that helped, Tara. Thanks you y'all for your questions. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. And if you're interested in supporting this podcast, as well as joining the CogDog Radio community, head over to patreon.com slash and become a patron for as little as $4 a month. I hope to see you there. Cheers.